This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Okay, so we're in week two of our series in Matthew, and I love that we're doing it during Advent because we get a chance to talk about these familiar Christmas stories in a context of the book of Matthew, kind of asking what's Matthew doing with these stories. I think we're used to kind of hearing them as individual little um, pericopes or individual little stories, and so we, we tell them at Christmas time. But Matthew means this to have a much deeper theological meaning for us beyond just the Christmas season. He's actually telling us who God is and what he's like and how God actually came to save us. And so it started with the genealogy, and what he's trying to establish there is that, that Jesus actually comes from the legal line of David. And he's the one who's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. So we see in this line and list of names that, that there is a, a legal, legitimate lineage for Jesus. And, and now in this section, I think what Matthew wants to do is say, not only is there like a legal lineage, there's a divine lineage. This is not just a man come from this long line of kings. This is actually a man who came from God, a man who is God himself. John would be explicit and say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is not just a mere human. This is one who would come into our world to come and rescue and to save. And so Matthew is just eliminating all guesswork and saying, this is what I want you to see from the very, very beginning. And by talking about those four women last week, it sets us up to talk about the fifth woman in this genealogy, which is Mary. So look with me in verse 16 of chapter 1 of Matthew. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there are some black hardback pew Bibles that were donated to us as a church, and they were given to us actually so we can give them away to you. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab that. We're on page 809 in that back uh, black pew Bible there, so you can take that with you if you like. I'm thankful for that gift for us so we can be in God's Word together. It's actually, I'm sorry, it's on 807 is the page that we're on. So look with me in verse 16. At the end of this list, we see end of Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And this calling of Christ, we'll see that formula a couple of different ways. But, but God wants to actually say this woman is the way that God actually brought this Savior into the world. And yet what's fascinating about the way Matthew tells this story is he shifts the perspective to tell us really the story through Joseph's perspective, not so much through Mary's perspective. And Luke is primarily focused on Mary's journey. It's her visions with the angels. It's her anxiety and tension of being a young woman who's found to be pregnant. It's her long journey of nine months pregnant from her hometown to, to where the baby was going to be born. It's her who's wrestling with not having a place for the baby to be born. It's in that space we read about those things in Luke. But from Joseph's perspective, it's actually pretty fascinating. He just wants us to know that he didn't sleep with her before they were married and that the baby came. Typical man, right? Typical man in verse 25, he just wants to say, hey, didn't know her till the son came, and then his name was Jesus. He almost even like skips over the birth, which you would kind of expect, right? So if you ask me and Adrian to give an account of our kids being born, you're going to hear very different versions. Same event, same moment, but very different experiences. I'm going to talk about how proud I was of Adrian and how this exciting drive to the hospital. I'll even talk about the snack bag that she prepared so we'd have snacks in the room and me rubbing her back and what that moment was like when she came out. Adrian's version is way more barbaric than that. There are adjectives and maybe expletives that Adrian would use to describe that event. From her perspective, it's the same event but a little bit different. What we get to see this morning is Joseph's perspective of what it would be like for him to hear that his fiancée was pregnant. 
And if you think you have trouble believing in the virgin birth, try being Joseph. Try being your actual fiance. And she's found to be with child, it says. He didn't, she didn't even tell him. She just, it's discovered in that moment, right? So he has this crisis as a man wrestling with what it means for God to come and break into his world in a very, very specific way. And it invites us, again, as people to ask, what would it look like for God to invade my world? What would it look like for me to trust this Messiah? And I think what you'll see in Joseph's story as he kind of unravels how God came and why he came, you'll see an invitation to see Jesus, you'll see his mission as the Messiah and his methods as the Messiah. I think it's actually in the names that we see in this passage that he's going to be called Jesus and he's going to be called Emmanuel that we see the mission of the Messiah and the method that the Messiah came with that actually gives us some sense of meaning and understanding from Joseph's perspective of why Jesus actually came in the first place. And so with that, let's just start in verse 18. We're going to walk through this passage. I want to just first walk through and just kind of see it through Joseph's perspective and then we'll zoom out and go, okay, what's Matthew doing? Right, He's teaching us theologically, what's he actually trying to say? So verse 18, again, it's on page 807 of your pew Bible. He says this, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So in the ancient world, betrothal was a little different than our engagement now. It was a legally binding thing, which is why we'll reference divorce a little bit later. So they were committed to each other, though not sleeping. They were in different homes, and they wouldn't be officially married until the groom welcomed the bride into his house, but they were legally bound together, right? So they're, they're betrothed. So she's betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, right, he wants to say, hey, before we actually were intimate, she was found to be with child. She was discovered. This thing just kind of happened. She didn't process it with Joseph. She didn't tell him about it, because how would you even try to explain that Anyway, the way it's written there, it's almost like until she can't hide it anymore, when the pregnancy is such a a maturation process where you can't hide that bump anymore, at that point, Joseph finds out, finds out that she's with child and from the Holy Spirit, which just put yourself in his shoes and go, man, I don't know about that. Like I've heard a lot of stories and Joseph knows where babies come from and now here's his fiance and maybe just like you and I, his first reaction would be to think, no, there's something um, something else going on here. There must be some other explanation for why Mary is found to be with child, right? And I love in verse 19, this character of Joseph is revealed. He says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I realize that word divorce is really powerful for us. Most of us are familiar with divorce. Either we've been divorced ourselves or we come from situations where we have parents that were divorced or friends that have been affected by that. So to hear in a sentence, he's a just man, going to divorce her quietly, you might raise your eyebrows and go, that's not just at all. But understand in this context, his other option was to publicly shame her as someone who'd been unfaithful, to expose her immorality, which would actually bring about condemnation from the community. So the text is actually, for the first century, pretty provocative that Joseph has the legal right to expose her, clear his own name, and instead what he's going to do is quietly divorce her to honor her, not to put her to shame. He has no idea what's going on. He can't explain it at all. There's no explanation humanly for what's going on. And yet this man of character we're meant to see has compassion on his fiance, who who would have just broken his heart. Can you just put yourself in Joseph's shoes? He's so excited to get married. And then she's pregnant by some other dude. But I love her so much. What I'm going to do is actually quietly, I'm not going to make a big fuss about it. I'm just going to step away legally so she can move on and I can move on. I love that the foster dad, the stepdad of our Savior, was a compassionate, kind man. 
Actually, as I've prayed through, I actually want to spend a lot of time on Joseph. I think Joseph would say, no, no don't talk about me. Talk about my boy. But, but I think there's something about the character of Joseph that's just important for us to stop for a second. When he doesn't know what's going on, his response is one of compassion. Oh, that we would be the kind of people when we're confused by somebody's behavior, somebody's lifestyle, somebody's choices, the situation, and we feel undone, we're brokenhearted, that, that would actually be met not with anger or vengeance, but with compassion. Right? In contrast to the other men in this genealogy took advantage of women, what you see is Jesus' stepdad is a compassionate man. So, so from Joseph's perspective, I think that's highlighted in the text, just so we see the kind of man Jesus would have grown up with. I think it's actually really beautiful. It's probably not the full point, right? Joseph would say, okay, that's enough. Kind of move on. Let's keep going. Because what he wants to say now is, all right, this is going on. So how, how do we actually explain this? He finds out that she's pregnant. And just like you and I, he doesn't go to supernatural um, explanations. He's very natural. So the angel has to come in and actually reveal to Joseph what had happened. So look with me in verse 20. But, but as he considered these things, as he was trying to be noble and honorable, as he was trying to be compassionate and, and love this woman that he loved who had broken his heart, in that moment as he's making a plan to do the right thing, even in a really painful way, this angel comes to him in a dream. All right, stop right now. Man, if you're a modern person, to hear angels interacting with us Maybe a stumbling block for you. Maybe actually you're a skeptic when it comes to things of faith and you're going, man, this simply just doesn't happen. Or this is why I don't believe the Bible because it's full of fairy tales like this. Let me just stop for a second. The, the Bible is full of actually a, a description of the world that I think we should expect if there is a real God who created. The creator could interact with his creation any way he wants to. And so I know we have for a long time through the Enlightenment have had this devolving view of humanity, where we're actually stripping from our humanity things like spirituality, things, things like eternality, th things like your heart, things like more than you can see and touch. Right? We've removed the idea that people are more than just the material world. Right? We, we actually have reduced humans down to just what we can see and touch. I know you've had a long list of that kind of preaching at you, and it's made you biased against things like the supernatural, but the, the Bible would describe a loving God who created everything, that's how we all got here. I don't know how you explain how we got here, but the Bible says that there's a loving, powerful God who created us and set everything up into motion. So then, of course, he could interact with our world. And not only because he can, because he has the power, he does out of love. Right? We see that he comes into our world. This incarnation event is actually to come and rescue us. Right? You remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world. That's why he sent his son into the world. So God interacts with our world out of love. And I realize in those couple of sentences, if you've come in really biased and skeptical, I'm not going to unravel that in a 30-minute sermon. I totally get that. I think there are some good books. I think Tim Keller's written some good stuff. Rebecca McLaughlin has a really good book called Confronting Christianity that I think is, is helpful. Man, if you want to dialogue, if you have some questions about faith and the validity of the Bible and how do we believe in something like the supernatural, I would love to dialogue with you about it. You could email me. I can put a book in your hand. We could talk about whatever you want to talk about. But, but I understand it's a big stumbling block, right? Because even a passage like this, you've got a couple of responses. Either you read it as so familiar, you just kind of yawn and move on right past. Or you stop for a second and go, wait a second, angels, incarnation, even prophecy, those things just don't happen, right? So you, maybe you read a passage like this with incredulity. Maybe you let your kids hear the story because they're kids, but you're more sophisticated than that, right? So we have this effort of actually dismissing a text like this. And yet there's some of us who read a passage like this and it stirs 
worship, I think you have one of the three responses. You kind of yawn at it, you're skeptical of it, or, or you begin to worship. I was with a person this week, and we were having a great conversation, just getting to know their story. And towards the end of the conversation, I just asked, like, man, what's going on inside? Like, how's your soul? And uh, I love this man just went to this place of worship, and he said, I love this time of year because it reminds me how God came and saved me. And that the Christmas story for him was a fresh story of his conversion and salvation. He said, I know what it was like not to believe. I know who I was apart from Christ. And, and this season reminds me that God actually loves me and he came into my world to come and rescue me, right? And just there we are over breakfast and he's pouring out his heart in worship, right? That's a legitimate response to a story like this. But I just want to stop and name, maybe you hear it and go, eh, I don't know. Virgin birth, like for real? But, but like, go, go back to Joseph, right? That Joseph's in exactly the same spot. He hears the story and doesn't go, oh, sure, this is about divine intervention. He stops and goes, oh, here's how I'm going to take care of this nobly. It takes the angel coming to him to actually say, what's wrong, and what's happened. So Matthew labors to say, hey, there is divine interaction. There's divine conception. The Holy Spirit actually is the one who has done this. And it reads real different than maybe you've heard like mythologies of like, like Greek myths of gods coming down and having intercourse with women and babies being born that way. Hey, kids, this reads real different than like a Percy Jackson novel. Right? There's no like erotic kind of romance. This is just God in a pure way, doing something very different. This is not God having sex with Mary. This is God conceiving to give us a Savior through supernatural means, which I think what's going to happen as we go on is to realize it had to be like that for us to actually have a Savior because our issue was so severe, a mere human could never fix it. God would have to come and reconcile us to himself, and yet only man should pay the penalty for his sin. And so it's in the incarnation of Christ that I think we actually get a plausible reason for something like the virgin birth. Not a scientific reason, but a plausible reason to say God himself had to come and rescue and save us, but only man should actually pay for his sins. And so it's in this mission of the Messiah and the method of the Messiah that I think we get reason to go, okay, maybe just maybe there's something to this that not just is true, but could be a place of hope for me. So, so Joseph hears from this angel Hey, don't, don't divorce her. This is not what you think. And he would have to have that revealed to him, right? We have to have revealed to us who God is and what he's like. So here's the deal. We can never remove mystery from our faith. And we actually shouldn't try to. It would actually weaken it and it would diminish it. If we took out and only left what was explainable through natural law, we would no longer have a God. Because by definition, God stands outside of those things. The mysteries in the scripture are actually meant to prove to us that God is actually real. Maybe flip that argument on its head just a little bit. Right? And that space what God is doing is saying, hey, there's something different than just what mere people could do. We're reading uh, Advent devotion. It's reflections from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Sometimes it's letters that he wrote from concentration camps. Sometimes it's sermons that he's preached. And there was a chapter this week about mystery. And he just says in that chapter, like, we can't erase nor should we try to because it would gut our faith of all that is beautiful. And there's a quote from Eugene Peterson in there just saying, hey, in this season, we're reminded there's more to life than what we can see and touch, that God actually steps into our world, which, again, I think is what, what Matthew wants us to see through the eyes of Joseph, right? Again, you're having trouble kind of wrapping your mind around uh, a virgin conception, try being Joseph. It's revealed to him, though, and we get to look over his shoulder and receive that revelation. All right, so to make it plausible, I think the angel gives reasons why this happened. He says this is the reason why this conception 
took place, right? So he says in, in verse 20 there, he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here's the reason why he came, for he will save the people from their sins. And he says to Joseph, this divine conception happened so that there would actually be a way for us to be saved and reconciled. You need to notice there's this rhythm here of call his name a couple of times. So, so flip um, just with your eyes to verse 16 again. So we read this verse already, but here, here's Mary, of whom Jesus was going to be born, who is called Christ. So the first thing Christ is called is Messiah. And we're wrestling with what kind of Messiah is he. Now we see in verse 21, you're going to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This Messiah didn't just come as a political king or as a warrior. Someone's going to overthrow Rome. He came to deal with our deepest problem, which is our sins. And in the next verse, verse 23, we'll see you're going to call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? Which is the method by which the Messiah is going to come, right? His mission is to come and save us from our sins. And his method is to come and actually be with us. And again, I think for Joseph in this dream, in this moment, his heart rate would drop a little bit and he would begin to make sense of this fact, okay, this has to be the way it is actually because the sins that I've committed, I know that blood and goats and their, their blood would never actually be enough to atone for my sin, the scripture says. And every year I have to go back to the, the, this Feast of Atonement to kind of have this moment where there's a symbolic forgiveness, but I know I'm actually still stained with my sin. And Joseph would be reminded that for him to be rescued and saved, God himself would actually have to come into our world. And he came not just as one teaching or one from the outside. He came and lived the life that we should have lived. So look in verse 23, uh, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So I think the angel of the Lord wants to go, hey, this isn't coming out of nowhere, by the way. This has been prophesied in Isaiah, just so you can remember that, right? So he's not just making this up. Like God just went, okay, shoot, what are we going to do now? We're getting close to like first century AD. We got to do something new. Let's, he said, no, this has always been the way it was. There was a prophecy given to us hundreds of years before where a virgin would have a baby. And that baby would be called Emmanuel. It would be God with us. So I want to just walk through what that means actually for a moment to kind of help wrap our minds around why he came the way he came and what it means that God is actually with us. So if you have that Bible, you can flip over to the book of Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. Let me get there and I'll get you a page number. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 7. So it's on page 572 in that pew Bible. It's on verse 14 of Isaiah chapter 7. This is where Matthew pulls this quote from, where the angel is actually talking. He says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. All right, so we have to talk for a second about Old Testament prophecy. Normally what you have is like a near fulfillment. Like this is actually a prophecy to King Ahaz about the judgment that's coming. And he's basically saying, hey, in the time it would take for a woman to get pregnant and then for that baby to grow up, and he actually says, you know, he's going to grow up to know good from evil. By the time that happens, the judgment's going to come. So he's saying, hey, you really got about two or three years, King Ahaz, until this thing's going to happen where Assyria's going to come and everything's going to go bad for you. So it's a near fulfillment in that moment. This prophecy happened. Right? Not, it's not a virgin conception. He's just saying, in the time it would take for a woman who hasn't ever been with a man 
to be with a man nine months, and that baby to grow up, he's going to say, to know the difference between good and evil, which, what is that, two years old before your kid starts overtly rebelling and out loud saying no and being disruptive, right? So what do you got, two years and nine months, or maybe your kid's progressive, maybe it's only 18 months, I don't know, but he's saying in a short amount of time, Ahaz, this judgment's going to come to you, right? So that's what's going on in the near fulfillment. And then what happens to the book of Isaiah is we realize there has to be a farther, more full fulfillment as well. So we come to chapter 8 in verse 8, and we see the name Emmanuel listed there again, and it's also in verse 10 of chapter 8. By the time we get to chapter 9, what you see is this description of this child that would come couldn't be just a person. So look with me in chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 6. This is on page 573. It says, "Front us a child is born, and a son is given." And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So these are not descriptions you give to a mere mortal, right? Even God himself, of the increase of his government, there shall be uh, peace, and there will be no end. And of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth to forevermore, right? So he's talking about an eternal kind of king. And, and no doubt, as people read this, they're kind of scratching their heads. So Isaiah goes on. Look with me in chapter 11 of Isaiah. This child prophecy has a near fulfillment for Ahaz, but he's also pointing to something more beautiful, something more rich. So in chapter 11 of Isaiah, it's on page 575, he says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Uh, this imagery of like trees being chopped down in judgment. Out of these judgment, these dead stumps, something alive will sprout up, a branch from the roots, and it shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So there's one coming out of this descendant line. And then we get to a place where we'll just fast forward a few chapters to Isaiah 53. Turn with me quite a few chapters now, all the way to page 614 in your pew Bible. This one now he says is eternal. He's called mighty God, wonderful counselor. So it can't just be this one little baby that the prophecy was given to Isaiah or Ahaz. There must be something more. What we see now in Isaiah 53 is this one who's prophesied to come. He says in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed because we all like streets have gone astray. and We've all turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So Joseph knows his Bible. He knows the prophecies of the Messiah coming. He knows there's this near fulfillment of this baby in chapter 7 of Isaiah. And then the thing starts building and it gets more and more, more than just a mere human could do. And we come actually to Isaiah 61. And this will be our last quote for the day. We could go so many places, but... In Isaiah 61, this is actually what Jesus stands and reads in the temple from the book of Luke. He stands and reads the Isaiah scroll, and it's this passage. He says, this is fulfilled in your presence. He says, the Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, to take what is broken and redeem it, what is shattered and actually seen it healed, an oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And they may be called oaks of righteousness and planted of the Lord that he may be glorified. And Jesus says, this is happening right now as I stand 
and read this. So Jesus would say, I'm the fulfillment of this Isaiah prophecy. So what does it mean that God promised to send one who would be Emmanuel, God with us? It means that it couldn't be just a human because they don't have the power to do things like save us of our sins and forgive us and be pierced for our afflictions and to be crushed for our iniquities. But in this prophecy, you also get a foreshadowing of what our problem is. And he says, I'm going to send Jesus. You're going to call him Jesus because he has to come and save his people from their sins. So Christmas is a declaration of the worst news you could possibly hear. That you are so messed up. That the, the depth of the stain is so deep, you could not save yourself. There's nothing you could do on your own to make yourself righteous with God. Christmas declares that. And it declares the most beautiful and amazing and glorious and life-giving truth you've ever heard in your life, that God himself took your place on the cross to absorb the penalty for that stain so that you could be not just forgiven and tolerated, but you could be welcomed and redeemed. This is God with us, not God tolerating us, not God just winking over our sin and getting by. This is God stepping into our world to show that he loves us, to live this life that we should have lived and die to death that we should have died because he loves us and he came to be with us. And Hebrews would say he came to be with us so we would have a high priest who was sympathetic and knew what it was like to be human. So the God that you prayed to just a few minutes ago, asking him to help you with these things you're struggling with, knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to grow up in a town where his conception is under question. There's rumors about him his whole life. We see in John, he's actually accused of having illegitimacy in his background. Right? He would grow up in this small town. You think you grew up in a small town, everybody knew everybody's business. Try being in a first century small peasant town like this. Everybody knew that Mary comes showing up with the bump too big to explain. So either Joseph is an illegitimate man and took advantage of her or something else is going on. And that's overshadowing his entire life. He knows what it's like to walk around with this cloud and accusation of shame. So where you feel that, you can bring that to Jesus. Right? The mission of the Messiah was to come and forgive you of your sins. And the method that he chose was not just to declare that. He could have done anything he wanted to, right? What he chose to do was to live your life, to walk in your shoes, to, to step into our humanity so that we could actually be fully healed. And theologians would wrestle with this concept for centuries and would go, oh, yeah. It's actually the way it had to be. Because again, only God can forgive us and only humans should pay the penalty for their sin. So God had to become man for this whole thing to make sense. And actually, the prophecies in Isaiah are so provocative. There were people who expected two different messiahs. One as a martyr who would die and then one as a king who would rule eternally. And what you see in these namings, actually, the angel saying, oh no, no, it's going to be one man. The messiah called Christ is called Jesus. He's going to forgive you of your sins, and he's called Emmanuel because he's going to be with you. From Joseph's perspective, this scandalous moment with his fiance, this woman that he loves, turns into the most beautiful declaration and proclamation of good news. That even for himself, his own sins could be dealt with, and that God was going to come and be with him, come to come and come and actually rescue and redeem. That, I think, is what God wants us to see. And it's in this mission and in the method of the Messiah that I think we get a plausible understanding for why the virgin conception had to happen. I realize if you've kind of grown up in a home or in a community 
um, that has not made allowance for the supernatural, I have not unraveled that tension for you in this moment. I totally get it. But, but I want to at least make it plausible to you, right? Against your bias where you said, no way, God doesn't interact with our world at all. Hey, what if actually for us to be saved, we needed some help from the outside? What if history has shown that humanity is unable to actually redeem itself and we needed something divine to step into our world? And then we should just ask, if that's what we needed, then how would it actually happen? And it could be anyway, right? But there's something beautiful about the way God chose to come through this poor peasant family, which we'll look at a little bit more next week, into a crisis situation. That God came that way, I think, speaks not just against our incredulity, but, but against our our bias that God doesn't care or he's aloof or he, maybe he exists but he's way out there and he's distant. Maybe you have a concept of a God but he's, he's out there somewhere, right? This kind of watchmaker sort of God. He set it up. Sure, you can't explain creation without there being something from the outside but then you, you have a view of God where he's absent. But what, what Joseph wants you to understand is that man, he had this dream and he wouldn't know it otherwise, right? It doesn't make any other sense but because of this dream he, he heard from the angel that his sins could be forgiven and God was going to come and dwell with us. And then so Matthew establishes this because it's true, but also to set us up to look for, okay, what will this Savior do who is living with us? So now you watch him interact with people and you see him heal the sick. What does it mean for God to dwell with us? It means that to the sick there is healing. To, to the broken there is mending. To the lepers there is cleansing. To those who are distraught there is hope. For the anxious there, there's comfort. And for the lost there is salvation which is not those people, that, that is us. What we'll see through the book of Matthew is God stepping into our world and what he did and what he taught and how we interacted to both prove his deity so that we could have hope for a Savior who would come and reconcile us and redeem us. It's in those two names then, calling him Jesus and calling him Emmanuel, that, that we have hope. And this idea that God took on flesh and came to be with us is the background hope for communion. Here's the deal. The virgin birth is pretty remarkable. The manger is a pretty amazing scene, but, but it's just a signpost to what is more miraculous, that God would die in our place, that he would take this flesh and blood that he had actually taken on, this incarnation, and he would let that be crucified in our place to have the penalty for our sin poured out upon him through his broken body and his shed blood, which is why we take communion every week. But to stop before we go any farther and say, oh, this God who came, God who came to save, actually stood in my place so that I could be forgiven and free. And these little cups are just such a small little token, right? They don't even capture uh, at all the essence of what we're trying to communicate. But, but in COVID, it's the best we can do to kind of, in a feeble way, say, let me remember the broken body and shed blood of Christ, right? So, so if you have these, I want to invite you to go ahead and bring them out. The one that looks like a chalice is gluten-free, and the other one with the purple top is for those of us who don't have gluten allergies, what you'll find there is just a small little representation of the body of Jesus and a small little representation of the blood of Christ, which a passage like this reminds us that this is what it meant for God to be with us. He took on flesh. He was filled with blood. He had, had human blood. He had human flesh. And that's what died on the cross for us, to forgive us of our sins. Right? That was his mission, and the method was through his own, his own life. And so when you think about making application from a passage like this, you start first with, oh, God, thank you that you died in my place. And then maybe another place of application would be as you even hold these reminders and you kind of wrap your mind around the idea of God stepping into our world. Maybe one application simply would be be open to the idea that God does and will interact in our world. 
Just be open to the idea. The same way he interacted with Joseph, he could interact with you. He could come and speak into your world. He could come explain things. He could come and reveal himself. Be open to the idea that the God who died on the cross for us cares enough about us to interact with our world. So maybe you could look for that. Maybe you could ask for that. Maybe you could long for that. You could anticipate a God who speaks and interacts in your world. And then for Christians, you would apply this by saying, because he came and he fulfilled his mission, right, to save me from my sins, I'm actually now forgiven and free. And Romans 8 says, if God didn't withhold the most important thing from us, then surely he's going to give you everything else that you need. So you could take communion with a lot of joy that God sees you, he knows you, that what you're longing for, he has for you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you could, could not take communion with us, but you could just think through, man, what would it look like for God to actually meet my needs? to deal with the brokenness inside my soul, right? Communion is for those who are trusting Christ. So it's not who you are. I mean, you can just sit in this moment and pray, but, but you could apply a passage like this by just asking God, hey, this is real. If you actually do work like this, if you actually did come to save me from my sins, would you reveal that to me the same way you did to Joseph? Joseph wouldn't know unless it was revealed. It's okay for you to pray, God, would you just show me that? Would you speak through your word and through this community and ask for God to actually show you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that, that he's real? Jesus, thank you that you came. Thank you that you love us. God, thanks that you revealed who you were. On our own, we would not come up with this. Just like Joseph would have no explanation apart from just trying to be kind and noble and compassionate to his fiancée, unless you revealed your plan, he wouldn't know it. Unless you revealed yourself to us, we wouldn't guess that you would love us enough to do this. We wouldn't guess this was even possible. So thanks for revealing yourself to us. So now would you stir our faith as we remember your mission was to save us of our sins, and your method was to actually be one of us. What a beautiful God you are. What an extravagant God you are. What a gracious God you are. We say thank you now as we sing. Would you fill our hearts with worship as we reflect in Jesus' name? Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.